Hello and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we will look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name is Melissa Yeo and I'm one of the directors of the Society. In this episode, we hear from Kiri Parr, Regional Council of Arab, who presented at our national conference in Canberra in November this year. Kiri looks at the opportunities for those in the construction industry to harness new technology to deliver projects that integrate data and take advantage of technological opportunities. Kiri's discussion about data sharing and the opportunities in the geotechnical engineering space, for example, are really tangible examples of the ways this technology can be utilised. Be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Laws podcasts, and we look forward to sharing more updates from our national conference in the next few episodes. I'm Melissa Yeo. Thanks for joining us. All right, so we're trying to work out my jet lag because I've just come off holidays. Holidays are wonderful things and there's never enough of them and a four-day week is much, much better. But that's a separate talk for a different day. Um, It's lovely to be here um, and today I'm going to continue a conversation I started with you last year and for those that you were here, I, I started a conversation around just the very kinds of things you were hearing about this morning and these challenges we have about delivering successful projects. So the proposition I gave you last year was that we're at a time of some quite significant challenges. If I can get this to work. All right. If I haven't pressed it too far. So these are the kinds of things that are affecting our world. There's a lot of them. And what's unusual about this point in time is that they're happening concurrently. So we've got lots of different pressures that are all happening in the same time. Our cities, our cities are becoming huge and hyper-diverse and how we work in them is actually changing. How we use our buildings is changing. Um, We're moving from our labour economies to a knowledge economy. There's a lot more collaboration and innovation that happens out there in the world today than ever before. And we've got these environmental drivers, haven't we? So we're looking at our cities, but how do we make them recover after a flood or after a storm? Um, And how do we design our cities so our people are healthy inside them? It's a really big driver. So there's a lot of those changes that are going on. And that's a whole two-day course, I think, to work what out those drivers are. Um, my second proposition to you was, amongst this concept, amongst this context, was what is the business norms that we've created as construction professionals in our industry? And I think you got a flavour of them this morning as well. It is adversarial contracting. It's about market power. Um, there is no standardisation. So we talk about let's build a tool that actually makes administrative administration of contracts more effective and they just go yeah but every contract's bespoke and now that I have to move it into a tool it just becomes not a practicable and affordable thing Um, and we really are obsessed with perfection as as lawyers we we think that nothing can go wrong in our projects and it's very hard for us to get our grip around change management and what are really really good change management processes I think that's that maturity debate that we've started But these business norms are letting us miss out. We're not capturing, not only responding to the challenges that these these factors are bringing for us, but are we really letting our clients take advantage of the opportunities that our world currently presents? So I started reimagining a different world last year. Sorry, last year when I spoke. I talked about the integrated data, that we're going to be capturing data coming out of buildings, coming out of our highways, coming out of our hospitals, coming out of our air. 
um, that we'll need to be sharing data. We're going to go into these collaborative data environments, which is going to actually allow us for some much better risk management um, and, and create a lot of opportunities. Um, and I think this data analysis is going to be one of the things that starts driving efficiency. So I've got three stories. Um, I might say that last year I did imagine a world with a construction contract that didn't have a fax clause in it. I'm still seeing them, people. I don't think we need them anymore. So if you want to send that back to your precedence team, I'll let you start there. All right. First story, integrated world. So this is what my business is doing when it comes to talking to owners of assets about what their future buildings might look like. Slow. Are we going there? Oh, here we go. All right, so we're sitting in a changing technological landscape. God, I can't read all of those things up there. Um, this is some research that's sitting there. This is the next 10 years. And, you know, this is in the context of five years ago, there weren't iPads. You didn't have them. What are we going to need in our buildings? What's the technology that's going to sit there over the next five or 10 years? We are scoping and writing the contracts for these projects right now, and you don't even know what your building's going to need in five years. So, you know, there's, this is really slow. Um, this is some research done by the Gartner Group, and this was just looking at some of the major technological changes. You know, interactions are going to be happening without people. Um, there'll be artificial intelligence sitting out there, not very far away. Um, and I can barely read it myself too, um, and all sorts of changes. So amongst that, how do we capture that on a building project? So let's, let's have a look at what we do right now. One day, here we go. I've done, obviously, my marketing people have done too much graphics. All right, so if we're looking at a building today, and you're looking at the digital environment, all of these components are being bought separately. You're buying your blind system, you're buying your CCTV access. They're all independent components that are specified in your projects. And they all then integrate to a person, a facilities manager. But they're not integrated, they're individual and they're siloed. So from a procurement perspective, this is what the current model does. So we, we uh, design, we go out to tender, we have somebody deliver it. But what does that mean? If what we design in year one has to be ready, how will that then cope with the new technology that comes in, that comes in at year three, when you're halfway through construction? What are the different decisions that you, a client might need to be making throughout the whole life of their project if they actually want to deliver a building that actually integrates its data and can actually start taking advantage of the new things that are going to come in the next five to 10 years. Do you want to go and take a DNC model that locks you into very fixed specifications and those boxed tools? That, well, that is what the market currently sells. Or do you want to try and do something different? How do you take a different decision-making framework into your contracts? What can you do, and this comes back to procurement models and clients really understanding what they want and how they're going to meet a new challenge. And how do they start designing the architecture for a building that might actually be ready to start getting to those and being able to integrate those 
those technology options that are going to come through. So this is the kind of work that owners and clever owners are starting to do so that their building can actually start adapting to these changes as they come through. The thing is, we just don't even know what they are just yet. And what is our future building going to look like? All right. One, we have to establish this common network of communication, so everything has to be able to talk to itself. We're going to need common building systems networks. So all of those lifts, those blinds, they actually all need to talk to each other. They don't do that well. The owners at the moment, because this isn't off the shelf, will have to go to the market and say, I want something different. And we're going to have a lot of IT disruptors out there coming in and offering something different. And then we start integrating it. We provide a system, information system that's going to add co co bring all that information together. And then we start analysing it and using it and developing the apps that means you're going to be able to book a conference room when you need it. You can get your coffee delivered. You can find the spare room in the building that's got 20 functions. And it's actually all about how you're going to use buildings in the future. There's the shift that's happening away from the fixed tenancy models, lots more collaborative models. So as owners and landlords, they're going to be much more interested in how their building gets used, how they bring the tenants into the cities, how they make it more interactive. What does that mean for you? And I must say, the other th oh, if I get through these slides, we don't even know all these things that we're going to decide we want in our buildings. So what does it mean for you? One, I think we're going to have to spend a lot more time with our clients working through what procurement models work for them. The DNC model, the fixed model, the very rigid models, are they really going to be adaptable enough for the changes that are coming? For the owners, I think there's a lot more, they have to think more about risks and managing those risks and how they might go out to market and start asking for and demanding a different service from the market. They're going to have to think more about their decision-making process and the responsibilities of the decision-making processes. Because we can't write a fixed specification on day one, because we don't know what we're going to do, we're going to need to establish those governance models that allow people to frame the opportunity that they're trying to capture really well and make the best decision with the information available at that point in time. And there's a lot more risk attached with this model. We're at a time of uncertainty. So again, it takes us back into that, what is going to be a procurement model that, that meets all those needs? So from my perspective, this was an interesting exercise in seeing that the opportunity here for clients to really capture the, to be the new buildings and that really start integrating data and to meet the needs of their tenants, the consumers, the community that are actually in there and using that building and connecting that up, and, and in the future connecting it with the building next door and the highways and our hospitals. Um, our very rigid models might not take us there. And I think it's going to take some really creative clients, some really informed, intelligent clients who uh, are going to start doing that. So hopefully you'll find the clients who are going to step into this brave new world. All right. I think I have to point this somewhere. There we go. All right, my second little story 
is that data sharing, I think, is one of the key things that we're going to start getting. And it was fascinating, the earlier conversation was how important geotechnical information is. And I know you guys all love your latent condition clauses. Um, and geotechnical information is one of those most uncertain elements of risk. And I want to show you what some of the other countries around the world do, because there are countries in this world that have geotechnical databases, and they're really good. This is Toronto, Ontario. Or, yes. And this came from some very early work done by an engineer back in the 70s, a guy called Robert Leggett. And they started collecting urban geologies from 27 cities. This Ontario database survives, and it's got 90,000 boreholes in it. It's publicly accessed, um, and it's accessed 12 times every day, and it's sitting inside a Google Maps interface. That's what Toronto has. London. London started being interested in their geology back in the 1799 with William Smith's geological map of Bath. It goes back a long time. This is really embedded in their, their geotechnical <coughs> profession in, in the UK. In 1992, their geological society launched their survey. They've got over 100,000 boreholes in the city of London. I tell you what, they come here and they go, where's the, where's the public access borehole database? And there isn't one. And they shake their heads. This is what drives better risk management of geology in other cities. This is Christchurch. And of course, Christchurch had their earthquake disaster in 2010, 2011, which obviously crises like these deliver uh, opportunities to start looking at these risks and managing it. And the government has set up a common data source. It's not as open as some of the other ones. So the London one, by the way, is free online and accessed approximately 60,000 times a month. The one in Christchurch isn't public, publicly accessible. Um, it's accessible by the geotechnical um, professionals because it carries a lot of data, more than maybe in some of the other databases. But there's a price. If you want the data, you have to share your data. So they've really worked out a model that's actually about maximising the amount of data that sits in the in the data set. And this is what Christchurch looks like. So do you want to know what we have in Australia? So Japan and Dublin also have these databases. So Australia, let me take you to what we have. This is Perth. Perth's the only place in Australia that has a public geotechnical database. They have 649 boreholes. They were collected in the 1970s from members of the Geotechnical Survey back then. This database is public and it's still used today, but that's it, that's what we have Australia. What I'm pleased to tell you though, is that this is a debate that the Australian Geotechnical Society is taking out into the, into the world and trying to start the debate about, will it be better if we have a publicly accessible geotechnical database. And why do we think that might be important? Well, if you're a geotechnical engineer, data is everything. We're talking about the risks of tunnels. We can start managing geology risks and understanding the risks of even a baseline geotechnical study of a tunnel better if we're sitting with a rich geotechnical publicly available database. These databases can be available to the public. They can be available to students. They can be available for research. Lots of things can come out of them. 
it's, if we can standardise it, it's going to help with BIM adaptation and it's just ongoing design efficiency. Um, and it's that, who knows where all the data analytics that those clever people out there do. What are we actually going to have to deal with though? Because what I'm interested in is these friction points between how lawyers think and how people who want to go, I want to make better engineering decisions. Where are the friction points for us as lawyers? Um, liability is a key issue because actually the number one concern is if you're a government department and you're setting this up is, am I going to get sued because I've made this data available? And we're part of creating the problem, we're also part of solving the problem. So we need to find the solutions for these. All of these global databases are generally based on a no liability basis. So because somebody is making the available, the information public, um, you don't want the people who are holding and hosting that data to be liable for it. Most of them sit with that framework. The second issue is ownership of all these data sets. Historically, they're sitting, you know, every single project's different. Um, and certainly contracts aren't very precise about the ownership of this kind of data. Um, it can be, if it's, if it's a government-owned data, it's a question for government whether as a matter of public policy they're going to release information and data sets that they have into the public domain. There's a big question about whether or not they even hold it. And of course we've got the private sector who actually hold large portions of this data. So our geotechnical engineers over the years build up their own data sets. It's really valuable commercial information to them. What does it take? Or, or what are the policy decisions? What is going to be a best for all decision? That might start seeing a future where the information isn't in some particular um, silos and we can actually get it shared. And look, it's the same thing that's happening in, for our financial um, colleagues in the fintech world. The, there's a raging debate right now whether the API data, that's the data that relates to how you as a person use your bank accounts and how you do individual transactions, all of the new fintech upstarts are wanting access to your individual usage so you can go and buy the app that says, oh, every time I make a purchase like this, I want to move $1 or I'll round it up to a dollar and move it out into a savings account. All these wonderful new apps are coming. They depend on them having access to financial transaction data of individual consumers. So there's a raging debate about whether or not our banks will um, allow access or whether the governments will force access. So it's the same. It's the same debate for everyone who's sitting in this industry. All right, third story. And this is where I'm going to get a bit personal. Um, because a lot of you might think that data is about people out there, it's all about the buildings and the industries, and it's not actually about what you do as lawyers. But the first empirical study on how lawyers draft contracts has been done this year. It was done in the uh, Washington School of Law uh, the paper's called The Inefficient Evolution of Merger Agreements by Robert Anderson and Jeffrey Mans. So prior to this, there's been virtually no empirical uh, work on legal drafting process. Um, and this particular process did focus on merger and acquisition documents. And that was because there was a large public document data set in the US. You have to file um, merger and acquisition contracts in the US, including which law firm drafted them and the lawyers involved. They analysed about 20,000 contracts over 20 years. And they used algorithms that are being used to, uh, de to detect plagiarism and for analysing gene sequencing. They're trying to track the history of documents. And let me show you one of the pictures from their paper because this is what we look like. It's not very rational, is it? It's not very 
based on central precedents which are modified for the particular project. You won't like what they said about how we draft contracts. We don't use standard firms, even the precedents within our firms. It's all about individuals knowing the contracts that they're familiar with and then trying to hybridise them and, and mould them into the next project that we work on. God, I'm seeing some funny smiles out there. <laughs> this might be hitting a nerve. Um, they evolve by iteration, that there isn't efficient precedent selection, very high levels of drafting churn, lots of changes that are made for cosmetic rather than substantive changes. I know we all like our own drafting. And this map's created despite the fact that in the US there is a standard merger and acquisition contract that they spent 15 years producing, 100 lawyers were involved, sounds a bit like our AS 11,000 or AS4122. Um, uh, it's not what the business is using. So I think one of the challenges for you is, is the, as, as the data of, of us and what we do gets looked at, we're going to be challenged about our own efficiency and how we are adding value. And this kind of empirical evidence is, is a challenge. Um, firstly, I'm concerned that we're going to reject this data because I know it's completely the antithesis of, of our business model and what your businesses make money doing. So that's a real challenge for us. We also like the complexity because it keeps competitors out. It's hard for people to come in and, and work because they might not have those precedent sets. They might not work in the same way. You need a lot of knowledge to know uh, where all these terms come from. Um, and do you know what? You guys are good arguers. You're going to be able to argue why your bespoke contract is really needed on that project. So I know this is going to be an interesting path. Um, but there is going to be pressure to change. There can be pressure to change from people like me, who really do value efficiency and value for money. This is part of that $30 billion of, of leakage of money. So if we can get a bit more efficiency in our contract procurements and get a bit more standardisation, then we can relieve money that actually will actually build some more hospitals and some more schools. So as a taxpayer, I'm going to keep on arguing for driving efficiency. And look, there's going to be the same pressures externally for us as well um, um, and, and for the clients. You know, there's going to be people who come from outside of our industry who start simplifying it, um, the leg tech uh, future that we might all start be starting to imagine. So I would lay down the challenge. This is a fascinating piece of research. If you get the chance to read it, do read it. Uh, it was the most refreshing thing I've read all year. Hopefully I've given you a little glimpse of things. So our buildings need to change to integrate that data and connect them up with the rest of the world around them. It's coming, but it's going to need some different decisions. Um, we have some challenges creating open data sets, but I think we're all up for it. And if we go there running, uh, we can create those and find our way through. The worst outcome is when they're forced upon you. So collaborate. And. Um, Look, data analytics is going to drive efficiency and it's coming to your home soon. So thank you.